Today we want to talk about this idea of a day of reckoning. We think of the day of reckoning as something that's going to happen in the distant future. Kind of this vague thing, yes, we know it's going to happen. And it's at the end of all things. And it's a dramatic, never-to-be-repeated, awesome event. And that day is coming, and it is awesome, because that's when the sentence of God is carried out. But as we're going to see, the actual reckoning is going on right now, in this life. And a point comes for nations and for individuals when God says, that's enough. You're done, and I'm not working with you anymore. Now, God likes working with somebody, a person who is like-minded, a man who is after his own heart, a woman who has the fear of God. That's what it means when you're like-minded with God, when you are a person after God's own heart. You are a person who fears God. Now, we've already seen how if a person doesn't think like God, he naturally works against God. And if a person does not have this like-mindedness, being after God's own heart, not fearing God, it doesn't mean that he's not afraid of anything. It means that this person fears things that are not God. And that affects a person's attitude and it affects their obedience to God. Those fears control a person's life. So we're looking today at the day of reckoning for nations and for individuals on this one issue, fearing God. That's what we're getting today in 1 Samuel chapter 15. I'm going to read the first three verses. It says, Samuel also said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore, heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Now here, God is giving Saul a holy mission. And he begins by emphasizing the authority of the Lord over himself and over Saul. He says, remember, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over Israel. God is over the both of us, 
So you listen to what I'm supposed to tell you. And God is saying, it is the day of reckoning for this nation called Amalek. Some 400 years previous, Israel was coming out of Egypt and Amalek, the nation, attacked them in the wilderness. And you might remember that Joshua picked some men, went out to fight with Amalek, while Moses and Aaron and Hur were on top of the mountain. And as long as Moses held up his hands and prayed, Joshua was victorious down there in the battlefield, but Moses' arms got tired, so they rolled a rock, he sat on it, and Aaron and Hur on either side held up Moses' arms so that he could pray and that Joshua would have victory. And at that time, God promised that he would utterly blot out Amalek from under heaven. And you know, that sounds tough, doesn't it? This might be one of those passages that people object to when they say, well, you know, the God of the Old Testament, you know, he's always smiting nations. And so they say, well, you know, I wouldn't do that. That's not a nice thing. Bad old God. What they miss is, is that he is God. And as such, he is the judge of the universe. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? You see, he created everything and he's going to judge everything. And everyone is responsible to him. So people do not improve spontaneously. Did you know that? Instead, people corrupt and become more corrupt if left to themselves. And this is the case with Amalek. And God says, the time has come for this nation. I'm going to wipe them out. And he tells Saul to put Amalek under the ban. It is a technical word. It means to devote to God. And that happens in two ways. One, in the way that we usually think of, of consecrating a person or a thing to the Lord to be sacred and holy and for the use of God. That's people and that's things. There's another aspect to this, the second aspect, where something can be devoted to God completely for destruction. But it's still a holy thing because it's the judgment and the verdict of God who is holy. So this is a sentence of God and God is doing a holy work in the judgment and destruction of a wicked nation. And this is a holy mission that God is giving to Saul. 
He is to represent God and to carry out the will of God. This comes through the prophet who was raised up by God speaking to the king who has been raised up by God. So we read further in verse four. So Saul gathered the people together and numbered them in Telam, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to a city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, go, depart, get down from among the Amalekites lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He also took Agak, king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag, and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were unwilling to utterly destroy them. But everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. So Saul musters the people, and then you notice he tells the Kenites to separate themselves from Amalek, lest he destroy them. And the reason is, they showed kindness to Israel when they came out of Egypt. In fact, Moses' father-in-law was among those people. And they showed kindness to Israel and even showed them ways in the wilderness. So, just as Amalek sowed wickedness and reaps judgment, the Kenites sowed kindness. It's that Hebrew word chesed, which refers to covenant love. And you'll see that translated loving kindness many times in the Old Testament. The New King James and the King James uses the word mercy a lot. But this is a quality of God, that he is faithful to his covenant and he shows covenant love. And that's what the Kenites did. Now, you know, the interesting thing is they have to believe Saul. He says, if you don't separate yourselves, I will destroy you as well. And they obey because they believe him. It's not the Kenites time today. And they're saved from destruction because they believe Saul's warning. But then Saul does not put Amalek under the ban. He wipes out most of the Am Amalekites. He says all the people, but we find out later he missed a few. And he wipes out everything that's despised and worthless. But all the good stuff, the soldiers come up and they say, wow, this is a really good ox. Look at all these sheep. Man, what a waste. Just, just destroy them and everything. And this is a really nice toaster here. And look at this microwave. Dang. 
I think it's better than mine. What do you think? Isn't it a waste to get rid of this stuff? Let's just take the good stuff. And Saul keeps Agag alive. And you think, well, why would you do that? And I think it's because Agag is king and he's like a trophy. I was victorious over him. He is my proof that I was victorious. Now that isn't obeying God. That isn't putting the nation under the ban and devoting them to God. That's picking and choosing. And that's no different from any other nation on the planet who are ruled by guys who like to plunder and pick on people because they can. So they get their army of thugs together and they go and they pick on somebody, they burn everything, kill everybody they want and they take the good stuff. There's nothing here where you could look at Israel and say, wow, they, they completely destroyed it. They devoted everything to God. It was a holy mission. Not They just look like a bunch of roughnecks. They look like a mob of plunderers. There's nothing here that says God. So it doesn't represent God at all. You couldn't see God in this if you wanted to. It just looks like any other other plundering, robbing, pillaging, killing that's going on all over the planet all day long, every day, every week. Nothing special here. It doesn't represent the judgment of God. So verse 10. Now the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I greatly regret this. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried out to the Lord all night. You know, Samuel is not with the army. He doesn't know what's going on, but God comes to Samuel and says, you know what, this isn't turning out. Saul isn't doing what I commanded him to do. And I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king. And you know, this isn't like God said, well, let's give him a chance and see how he's doing. And you know, if he gets past his probation, we'll keep him on. God already knew in advance. And so he's not surprised, but he is grieved in his heart because he is giving Saul a legitimate opportunity to respond to his word and obey him. And Saul hasn't done that. And God is sorrowful. And so is Samuel. He's grieved, cries out all night long. And the word has an aspect in it of anger. He's grieved and is angry. He's feeling like God. He's like-minded with him. 
And the whole point of it is, it's so unnecessary. It didn't have to happen. So now, in verse 12, when Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul went up to Carmel. And indeed, he set up a monument for himself, and he has gone around, passed by, and gone down to Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears, and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we've utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said to Saul, Be quiet, and I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, Speak on. So Samuel said, when you were little in your own eyes, were you not head of the tribes of Israel? And did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? Now the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, but I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me and brought back Agag, king of Amalek. I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites, but the people took of the plunder, sheep and oxen, the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. So Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned around to go away, Saul seized the, seized the edge of his robe, and it tore. So Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today, and has given it to a neighbor of yours, who is better than you. And also the strength of Israel will not lie nor relent, for he is not a man that he should relent. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now, please, before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may worship the Lord your God. So 
Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul worshiped the Lord. So here, Samuel confronts Saul. There's a day of reckoning for nations, and there's a day of reckoning for individuals. And Saul's day has come. Now, he himself is oblivious to this because there in verse 12, he set up a monument for himself. And this is what you do when you want everybody to know that you did a good job. So he says, I want this monument to be set up so everybody knows I was victor over Amalek here so that generations to come will look at that and say, Daddy, what is that? Well, that was Saul. Saul did a fabulous job over the Amalekites. Wow. That's impressive. Well, Saul says, I did a pretty good job if I say so myself. Now, he knows that he didn't exactly do what Saul, what Samuel told him to do. You know, he gets that because in verse 13, Samuel arrives and Saul goes out to meet him and says, blessed are you of the Lord. I've done what God told me to do. Maybe a little too friendly there, a little too much. Hey, good to see ya. Victorious, right? And Samuel says, well, if you did everything you were supposed to do, what's that noise? I hear sheep and I hear oxen. And Saul justifies himself with two lines of reasoning. And the first line of reasoning is he throws Israel under the bus. He says, they did it. They did it. So it's the people. Yeah, no. Though if you look at uh, verse 9, it says Saul and the people. He was in front. He led them in doing this. But he says they did this. But here's his second line of reasoning for justifying himself. We did it for a good reason. We are going to sacrifice this to the Lord in Gilgal, godlike sacrifice. Right? Good, huh? Now, this is called spin. And spin is defined as a special point of view, emphasis, and interpretation presented for the purpose of influencing opinion. So, Samuel, when you look at it this way, you gotta squint a little bit. If you look at it this way, everybody wins because it was them that did it and for a good reason. It's for the Lord, right? Right? Do you see it? Do you, do you see it? And Samuel goes, absolutely not. 
See, he's got the perspective of God who is always right. And he says, be quiet. And it's one of those, I don't want to hear anymore. So I'll tell you what God said to me last night. You were little in your own eyes. You never expected to be king. You had no ambition to be king. God came to you. This is his idea. You are responsible to him. And you notice there in verse 18, utterly destroy the sinners. This was a holy mission. Put them under the ban. And he says, you swooped down on the spoil and you did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. That is the explanation of what they did and no other. There's no way to justify this. But Saul goes ahead and repeats the spin. But I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I did. I just brought back Agag and the rest we're going to sacrifice. And this is this great response of Samuel. You know what, God, God doesn't care about burning meat. He cares about obedience because the sacrifice and all the religion, it has a meaning, but it doesn't mean anything when the heart is not there. When there's disobedience, that outward religious act is meaningless. God's not interested. It's not acceptable to him. It's not pleasing to him. There's a contradiction happening between what's visible and what's invisible. Man looks on the outside and God sees the heart. Now, rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. That is the attempt to find power and knowledge, but not from God. And if you're not seeking the, the Lord for power and for knowledge and understanding, you're seeking it from an unclean source that is not God. That is not pleasing to the Lord. That's corrupting and destructive. Being stubborn. Stubborn means unpersuadable. I have 47 good reasons why you need to change your mind. Doesn't matter. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. He says, that's as iniquity and idolatry. You know, if you worship some other God than God, basically you're worshiping the devil because that's exactly what the devil does. He seeks power other than God and he is stubborn, resistant. That doesn't honor God, it doesn't please him. And Samuel says, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. Saul is fired. 
right now. Verse 24, Saul makes confession. This is interesting because he comes out with it. He says, I have sinned. Okay, I'm not justifying myself anymore. I have sinned. I have sinned against the commandment of the Lord. Your words, I feared the people and obeyed their voice. He's being transparent and honest now. And you don't expect this, do you? You expect him to stonewall Samuel and just say, well, you know, but he says, okay, 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 okay. I feared the people. I feared what they would think. I, I, I was weak. I sinned. And then he says, just pardon my sin. And this is what happens in confession, right? You confess your sins and the priest says, okay, say these many prayers and do this and everything's okay. But you see that Samuel says, uh-uh. It's too late. That's not gonna help you. Being honest, confessing, transparency, it's over. So I'm not going back with you. And this is where Saul gets desperate. Samuel is gonna leave and Saul says no. He pulls on him so hard he rips Samuel's clothing. Now that's, that's rough, isn't it? Practice this at home. How hard do you have to grab somebody before their clothing rips? This is a desperate movement. No! And Samuel just looks at him and says, you know what? God has torn the kingdom from you. He's given it to somebody else. You're done. Now, it doesn't matter how hard you hang on. The Lord is going to tear it out of your hands. And the Lord isn't going to change his mind. In verse 29, Samuel calls him the strength of Israel, at least in the New King James translation. But that word in Hebrew means something more like enduring continually, perpetual, forever. And so the idea of God being eternal and outside time, outside space, he is God. He's not going to go, well, I don't know, gosh. Yeah, he's kind of repentant and stuff. Well, maybe I did the wrong thing. Maybe I'll give him six more weeks. You know, God does not have to change his mind. When he says, we're done, we're done, and the decision cannot be undone. It's over. Now Saul is going to hang on to the kingdom anyway. He says, I've sinned, yet honor me now, please, before the elders of my people. If I go back there without you, everybody's going to say, wait a minute, where's Samuel? He was just here a minute ago. 
what happened? It'd be kind of like the Queen of England showing up without the Prime Minister there. It's like, he's supposed to be there. What happened? And Saul is not going to face that. He says, I want you to come back with me. And then Samuel goes with him. Isn't that interesting? I can just imagine Samuel just going, okay, for all the good it'll do you, I'll go back with you. So as far as the people are concerned, here comes Saul and he worships. There's Samuel, there's the sacrifice, everything's going on, it looks great. Normal, nobody's going, an amazing day of reckoning has just taken place. As far as everybody knows, he's the king. Everything's great, there's Samuel. We're good. But it only looks like that on the surface. Saul is fired. And instead of responding to that, obeying that, getting off the throne, he holds on to the throne. And from here on in, God is not with him. And he will lose everything, guaranteed. Now, you know, God doesn't exactly have huge judgments of fire, earthquake, and But God does wait. And he's got time. Because the day will come when everything will be torn out of Saul's grasp by death. He will lose everything. And he's on his way right now. So here he is worshiping the Lord. Everybody else is happy. Is God happy? The worship doesn't mean anything. It has no meaning to God. It is merely a burning ox a guy on his knees, maybe. Maybe he's saying the right words. But it has no meaning to God whatsoever. So then we have verse 32. Samuel said, bring Agag, king of the Amalekites, here to me. So Agag came to him cautiously. And Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag in pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah. Saul went up to his house at Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel went no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. So Samuel says, bring him here. And Agag is kind of like going, well, are we cool? <laughs> no, everything okay? I mean, bitterness of death is past. Some translations have that he came cheerfully. Kind of like he's thinking, well, maybe the worst is past. 
we're cool, I'm still alive, you know, I lost all my people, they're all dead and stuff, but hey, I'm still alive and that's all that matters, right? Right? So I'm still alive, everything's great. What do you think? Buds? And God's judgment is according to truth. Your sword has made many women childless. He's got to be some kind of vile, despicable, murderer, calloused, gross. Surely the bitterness of death is past. Uh, so he's an old man. He's retired. But he puts Agag under the ban. Does everybody get that? And this is not vindictiveness. This is God. Now the problem was that Saul did not do what God wanted. And you think, well, what does it matter? The disobedience. We tend to think of disobedience kind of like, okay, I stuck my chewing gum to the bottom of my chair and I got caught. Okay, I get it. It's kind of gross. But I mean, it's, is it okay? Just pardon me. And we'll get this over with and then keep going forward. What does it matter? Well, Amalek keeps coming back. This is the interesting thing. Much later, in the time of the Persian kings, this one Persian noble gets offended because this Jew does not bow down to him when everybody else is supposed to bow down to him. In his mind, his revenge is not going to be on this one guy. He wants to wipe out all the Jews and kill them. So he gives the king 10,000 talents of silver so that the king will write a decree and say, let's kill all the Jews. And his name is Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agag guide. He is descended from Agag. So this one guy pops up centuries later to destroy all of God's people because Saul did not finish the job. But even before that, 2 Samuel chapter 1, a young man comes to David with the crown and arm bracelet belonging to Saul. And he says, I came across him after the battle. And he was wounded. He asked me to kill him before the Philistines got to him. And I saw he couldn't live, so I killed him. And David says, who are you? And he says, I'm an Amalekite. Now see, when you don't obey God, it doesn't go well. It comes back on you. When Saul disobeyed God, he put the nation in jeopardy and he put his own life in danger. He sinned against himself in disobeying. And this is the real issue. When we disobey God, we sin against ourselves. And this chapter ends in sadness. Samuel 
never sees Saul again. And Samuel mourns for Saul, and the Lord is sorry. Now, it grieves him. He's fired Saul already, and yet he's grieved in his heart. We really don't understand the graciousness of God and his compassion and his love. When we disobey God, we are sinning against eternal divine love, and it grieves God. So we need to read a chapter like this once in a while so that we have a proper perspective of life, so that we have the fear of the Lord. It's not a bad thing. It is a good thing, enduring forever. It's clean. And it's good for us to remember that God remembers all of our sins, our disobedience. He's going to hold us accountable. He remembers Amalek four centuries later what they did. It's still fresh in his mind. And we need to know that God is going to judge everyone. You think, well, I'm too small. I'm too microscopic. Nope. He's going to judge according to total knowledge and absolute truth, and there is no spin before God. No outward religious ritual can save you. Confession cannot save you. And when God judges, no one can say anything. Everything is going to be ripped out of our hands. So our great need is to be saved from our sins and from the wrath of God. When we stand before God in judgment, we do not want to hear, depart from me, I never knew you. Do you feel awful right now? I feel awful. That's why I'm so amazed about Jesus. Because I know I deserve judgment for my sins. I deserve it. I am worthy of that. And yet, God caused all that judgment and death that I deserved to fall on Jesus instead. That is, that redeems me out of my sins and failures and disobedience and hard heart and I don't care. What does my disobedience mean? I don't care. Redeemed. And when you receive Jesus, you're born again with a new heart, with the Holy Spirit to enable and the love of God poured out into your heart. It's just amazing. You just have to say thank you, God, that you would have mercy on sinners. Until you understand your sin, Jesus is not going to make any sense whatsoever. But when you realize, man, I deserve hell, 
then you think, man, Jesus is amazing. Now, Jesus is the one who makes us known to the Father. This is the thing that I was thinking about. He says in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. So does God know you? It's not even enough for you to know God. He has to know you and say, yeah, I know you. I tell you, that's what I'm looking forward to. That's what heaven is. Heaven is, I know you. And I'm going to say, I am so glad. Now here, Saul craved the approval of men. And what I notice about myself is, I do too. I crave the approval of men. I'm happy. I'm satisfied with that. And if everybody says, I did good, good job, Rob, then I go, that's good. And you know, when you do that, you automatically disregard God and his approval, which is way more important. So what do you do if you know that you actually prefer everybody else to slap you on the back and say, hey, good job. And you know, you really ought to be looking for God's approval. Here's what you do. Look into eternity. Make it a habit to look into eternity and see God and see where everything is going because everything is going right up to that moment when you stand before God and then he says, what? And if you do that, then you go, be merciful to me, a sinner, right now. God, I want you to know me. That's what David said, search me, Know my heart. And if God knows you, it doesn't matter if anybody else does. That is no longer your focus. You're not going to waste your time setting up monuments to yourself so that everybody else can know you did good. From here on in, it doesn't matter what anybody thinks. And this is the way to be free from everybody and all that fear and what happens if I do this? Because in the end, it doesn't matter. It wouldn't matter if everybody in the world voted for you. Because if you stand before God and he says, who are you? Doesn't matter. Your life has been wasted. The fear of the Lord 
is to be concerned about what God thinks and nobody else. Isn't that simple? If you're concerned about what God thinks, you're not going to care about what anybody else thinks. Poor Saul sets up a monument to himself, thinks he's doing good, and then he gets fired. All we want to do is, what do you think about me, Lord? I want your approval. Does everybody get that? Now, the great thing is, you receive Jesus. You trust in him, and here comes the Father, and he says, my beloved son in whom is all my delight. Love you. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you are gracious and merciful. Thank you, Lord, that you have bought us out of all of our failures and sins and wickedness. Thank you for loving us enough to do that. And today, we want to be strong in that grace that's in Christ Jesus. We want to say, okay, I know I'm not worthy in myself. I know I don't deserve your love, but I'm going to let you love me anyway. And I'm going to be happy in that. And I may not have much to show from my life that I can see, but I trust in Jesus. And I love you for sending Jesus to die in my place. I love you today. I pray for us this week that we would be able to walk in that love and to know your goodness, to see your grace all over our lives as we trust in Jesus. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.